Amen. People of God, please take your seats. In God's presence, <coughs> the King of Kings. So yesterday, uh, somewhere towards the end of the Fantastic Fun Fair, someone asked uh, Pastor Emmanuel, who's preaching today? So uh, that's me. But the thing is, he was asking him, can he preach on rest? <laughs> I don't know about your legs, but my legs are very tired from yesterday and from this morning's sermon as well. And definitely, I think we appreciate some rest for our legs. And so I'm going to give you some rest. Rest your legs by preaching a longer sermon today. <laughs> All right, but seriously, we'll talk about rest in our identities as children of God as well. Today's sermon is about what pleases God. Have you ever wondered to yourself this question? Am I pleasing to God? Is what I'm doing pleasing to God? In our context as a church, what we did yesterday for this fantastic fiesta, was it pleasing to God? Is what we are doing pleasing to God? So today, let's explore the answer to this question from the way that Jesus lived his life as seen from John's Gospel, I will also take some reference from Matthew's Gospel as well. <clears throat> Let's read from John chapter 8, from verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, <clears throat> from earth, right? But I am from he- heaven, above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They ask. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much more to say in judgment of you, but He who sent me is trustworthy, and what I've heard from Him, I tell the world. They did not understand He was telling them about His Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that means crucified Him, then you will know that I am He, And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. We covered this portion in my previous sermon that Jesus does whatever uh, the Father shows him. Verse 29 now. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. And then verse 30. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is a verse that many of us probably are familiar with. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. But let's look at the larger context for today. And then final verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Come, let us pray. O Holy Spirit, we ask that Lord, you really send revelation Open our hearts, minds, spirits to hear this word. Importantly, Lord, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but really to rest upon your word. For your word is life. And Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We commit this time into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the typical sermon, normally we go through a few points, right? And we take a point by point along the way. But for today, I'll take a different approach. I'll give us the answers first and then unpack the theology for us. And so to this question, what 
pleases God. The three statements I want to propose to us this morning are these. Number one, what pleases God is for us and for people to believe in His Son. So first of all, what pleases God is for us and for people to believe in His Son. Second, what pleases God is us obeying Him as sons and daughters of God. Third, what pleases God is for us to make room to hold on to His Word, to make room for God's Word, to hold on to His Word. In a short while, you will see by the end of the sermon, certainly, that these three are very much interlinked, they're connected, and they basically revolve around one fundamental issue, and that is our identity as children of God. No, this is the, now, no, this is the area that uh, Satan will always attack us, our identities as children of God. Just look at the temptations that Jesus faced just before he started his ministry. Satan taunted him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. And so he always questioned him, If you are truly the Son of God, prove yourself. But each time Jesus will reply, It is written. So Jesus anchored his identity in the Word of God. And so that is our key lesson for us today as well, to anchor our identity in the Word of God. But let's come back to the first point for today. What pleases God is us and people believing in His Son. Look at verse 24 again. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 also declares this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, this word wanting or desiring in some other translations, in Greek has this sense of not just emotionally desiring something or wishing for something, but also has this dimension of planning. So let's just give you a simple illustration. Let's say you want to go, your desire is to go to Japan for holiday. It remains a desire until you start to plan. You buy the air tickets, you book the hotel, and then your desire now is strengthened, right? Because you have put in place a certain plan. If there's no plan, your desire is really just a wishy-washy kind of desire. There is no real intention to go. So put in this context, what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 is saying is this, God really does not desire anyone to perish to the extent that He will never plan for anyone to perish. Do you get that? So God's desire is not just a wish, but He does not plan for anyone to perish. So it has never crossed God's mind to determine anyone's destruction. On the contrary, it is Satan's desire and plan to destroy, that everyone will perish. But God's wish, God's desire, and God's plan right from the very beginning is for everyone to be reconciled, to be rescued, and to be saved through faith and repentance. So that's God's desire and plan. In my previous sermon, I made it very clear that believing in Jesus is a key motive, a key theme in the, John, in the Gospel of John. One must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He sent by the Father to die for our sins. If we do not believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, we will indeed die in our sins. Now, this is a statement most of us will probably feel a bit uncomfortable with. Why? Why must it be this way? Why is there only one way to be saved? 
Why are Christians so insistent that I must believe in Jesus? Don't all religions teach us to do good? Isn't there something that I can do? I can do something that is pleasing to God? Well, to answer these questions, which are very legitimate, we need to recognize a few things from the Scripture's point of view. First of all, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what does the glory of God mean? For me, the glory of God is seen in the purity of His perfect love. So selfless, so unconditional. This love in Him, there is only goodness, truth, and pure love. And that is why nobody can ever meet this glorious standard, the holiness of God. Because who among us dares to admit that we have never ever been selfish? Just think of the days you go to the hawker centre, you choke a seat with a tissue packet. <laughs> you already start thinking about yourself, right? We are all selfish to an extent. But God in His glory is unconditional, self-giving love all the time. And so, obviously, nobody can meet this standard. It's not just about doing wrong, which is how typically people understand you do wrong, that's why you sin. That is true, but, not in, but inadequate. It's really not living up to the standard of perfect love. And not only do we fail to meet up to these standards of uh, perfect love, we become rebels, enemies of God, by deliberately doubting, lowering, or even twisting God's truths and God's standards. Satan asked Eve in the Garden of Eden, did God really say, did God really say you cannot eat? So that's really casting doubt. And then after that, lowering the standard, God did not really say you cannot eat, right? Eve, that's what Eve did, eventually twisting the word of God. And so like enemies of God, like Satan, unfortunately, we also question God many times. Did God really say that Jesus is the only way? We cast doubt, we lower, and we even twist God's truth and standard. That's the state of the world that we live in. Even worse than that, we not only reject God, we choose not to seek Him at all. And therefore, in that state, really it is impossible for us as human beings to ever please God. We are like this spoiled child who has turned our back upon our Father. Nothing in us desires God at all. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, there is no good in us. None of us will ever desire and seek God. Certainly much less will we want to submit to God or His ways because we have rejected Him. We rebelled against Him. And so it is only God who had to take the first step to make salvation possible because remember, in our own sinful state, we will never choose God. So God had to take the first step to reconcile us back to Him. How? He sent Jesus to become one of us, human like us, so that He can identify with us, perfectly represent us, be our advocate. Yet Jesus also retained His divinity, His 100% God still, so He can perfectly fulfill God's glorious standards. Now the thing about reconciliation is this, we need to recognize that true reconciliation cannot take place without both justice and mercy. <clears throat> For reconciliation to take place, there must be both justice and mercy. Justice is when you right the wrong. Something has been done wrong, damage has been done, you need to correct the error that's righting the wrong. Mercy is the willingness to extend forgiveness. You must first satisfy justice before you can extend forgiveness. You can have one without the other, right? You can right a wrong and someone chooses not to forgive. You can forgive but not right the wrong. But in Jesus Christ, God's justice and mercy are both fulfilled. So we all deserve death for our rebellion against God. God as the righteous judge cannot simply just, hey, never mind, lie. you rebel, it's okay. No, there must be punishment for sin, and the punishment for sin is death, and that's why we will indeed die in our sins. But because of Jesus, that price has been paid, we can be saved because of Jesus. And that is why 
There is no other way that we Christians proclaim there is salvation, no other name except Jesus Christ alone. Because only He has fulfilled the glorious standard of perfection in love. The God who is 100% righteous, and yet He is the only one who represents us humanly. 100% human, 100% God. And so in Christ Jesus, both God's justice and mercy are satisfied. That's a long, short summary of the full gospel message. Right? But essentially that means there's no other way. And that's why Christians, we're not bigoted. But really, according to the word of God, there is no other way once you recognize who we are. So the whole point in this very long digression is simply this. In our natural, sinful state as human beings, there is nothing we can do that pleases God. In our natural, sinful state as sinners and rebels, enemies of God, who even twist God's word, there is nothing that we can do that will ever please God. Now this is a message probably we are not comfortable to hear. But these are the very words of Scripture. But thanks be to God, there is one person who has fulfilled this perfect standard in all human history, who pleased God 100%, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 29, the Son says, I always do whatever is pleasing to Him. So thanks be to God, truly through Jesus Christ, we can also be found to be pleasing to Him. So how, if we want to be pleasing to God, the very first thing we need to do really is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus, that He became human, He died on our behalf, He died in our place, He died on behalf of our sins. And that's why Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. It's as simple as that. But to reject the Son, therefore, is to reject the Father. If you reject the Son, you are rejecting the Father. And if you reject the Son, how can you ever please God? Because that is the way that the Father has chosen to save us. Matthew 21 records for me one of the most mind-blowing parables ever in Scripture. How incredibly patient the owner of the vineyard is. Listen to this parable that Jesus taught, Matthew 21 verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, he dug a wide press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So it's a beautiful property that he rented out to the tenants. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit, collect the rental. So the tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent the other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they replied, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now think for yourself, if you were the landowner, would you do as this landowner did? First, send a servant, right? They beat this servant. Maybe you're gracious, okay, I will send a second servant. But this time they killed the second servant. Would you as the landowner continue to send servant? No, right? Most of us will send police. <laughs> but <clears throat> this landowner continued to send the third servant who was stoned and then even more servants after that. Who in our right minds will send servant after servant? And that's why the most baffling part, my blowing part for me is that the landowner <clears throat> even ventured to send his own son. Maybe he thought to himself, okay, maybe the servants had no authority, but I will send my son. 
who carries my name, my authority. Surely they will listen to my son, respect him. But the parable tells us the tenants killed the son. Now friends, this is exactly what God has done in the Old Testament. He sent prophets after prophets after prophets <coughs> to tell his people <coughs> that basically they were supposed to give honour, worship and obedience due to God because God had saved them from Egypt, delivered them from being slaves in Egypt to make them free. So they are supposed to worship God, give thanks to Him. That's their so-called rental, right? Their fruit, bearing fruit to God's glory. But they didn't do that. Instead, they killed the prophets who were sent by God. At this time, God sent His very Son, Jesus. Okay, you killed all my servants? Never mind. Now I send to you my only Son. Surely you will respect Him. Unfortunately, as the Gospel tells us, history records for us, they crucified and killed the Son of God. When Jesus taught this parable, actually he hasn't been arrested yet. There was still opportunity to repent. But unfortunately, they didn't repent. Instead, they hardened their hearts <clears throat> to really continue to persecute God. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus said about why he spoke in parables. In them, in parables, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And so one of the key reasons why Jesus spoke in parables is to harden the hearts of people. For those who are children of God, we hear the word of God, the, root, the word will take root, it will bear fruit and grow. But for those who are enemies of God, every time the word is preached, every time light is being shone, we hide in darkness, we reject the word of God. And so God's word, beyond just the parables, will always have this dual effect. It either causes growth or it will cause our hearts to be hardened. <clears throat> so for enemies of God, God's word only serves to harden their hearts. That's been the reality that Jesus experienced. It will continue to be our reality in our world today. But we can make a choice for us who hear the word of God today. What will our response be? Will we be listening to God's gracious, patient call for us to repent and believe in His Son? Or will we continue to harden our hearts and say, no, God, I will continue to do things my own way. So make no mistakes, my friends. The first thing that, God, that pleases God really is us believing in His Son. Apart from Jesus Christ, everything, everything that we try to do, our good work so-called, will always be considered as filthy wrecks before the Lord. Everything that we try to do before we believe in Jesus will always be considered as filthy wrecks before the Lord. Because there is no other first step in pleasing God except by believing in Jesus, His Son. That's the most important first step. But things change a lot the moment we believe in Jesus. First of all, we become adopted children of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. And then in that state, as children of God, adopted children of God, the good works that we do really do matter. In the first, there is a change of status. We are no longer enemies of God. Instead, we have become beloved children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And let me say here, to be a child of God, to think deeply, is to put us in the same position as Jesus Christ. Let me say that again and slower so that it will sink in. To be a child of God essentially now puts us in the same position as Jesus Christ. That's mind-blowing too. I hope we realize how significant that is. It is a complete change in status. In the world of the New Testament, 
you need to understand that an adopted child is no less than a natural born. Maybe in our world, we feel someone who is adopted is less. But legally, they're not less. But somehow we feel and perceive that they're less. But in the Roman Empire, it was the opposite. In fact, several of these emperors in the past were adopted. Augustus, for example, Tiberius, Marcus Aurelius, all these emperors, Caesars, were adopted. They were not natural born. But they were handpicked by the Caesar, the emperor at the time. I want you to be my successor. And how do I know that you are my successor? I will adopt you formally to be part of my family. So in the New Testament world, adoption is very powerful. can be even more powerful than the natural born. And so if the father's incredible grace and patience to send servant after servant to send his son is mind-blowing, now this is equally mind-blowing, that we become children of God. And that is the rest, actually, that God promises us. I cannot give you rest more than 30 minutes of sermon. (laughs) But the rest that God gives to us, that is the true rest they are all longing for, the identity as children of God. And here's the thing that many people don't realize. It is as children of God in this new status that whatever we do out of obedience to Him and out of genuine love for Him and for people, these are the things that will always be pleasing to God. John Wesley used this analogy in his sermons. Think of a house. right? Before you step into the house, you are an enemy of God. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you enter through that one narrow door. There are not many doors, there's only one door. But the moment you enter through that door, through faith, through repentance in Jesus Christ, you become no longer the enemy of God, but a child, a son, and a daughter of God. The whole house is for you to, to explore to try things out as children of God. Of course, we still need to learn how to behave uh, as children of God, as it were. But there is a fundamental change in status. And once we are children of God, whatever we do out of genuine love for Him and people is always pleasing to Him. Jesus uses the phrase, for I always do what pleases Him. In Greek, it's a bit weird translation. The literal translation goes like this, for I, for I, the things which are pleasing to Him, I do always. That is the literal Greek translation, but I highlighted for you the two points that I want to mention here. There is the personal dimension, I, I, taking personal responsibility, always do things that please Him. So that's the temporal dimension. Jesus made it a point as His Son to always please the Father. To use more contemporary language, maybe you can think of it this way, Jesus always lived to bring a smile to God His Father. His intention as the son is always to please God, his father. As earthly parents, I think many of us experience this. You know, we are very thankful whenever our children do something out of the goodness of their hearts. It may not be perfect, you know, by worldly standards, perfect, but it is still pleasing to us. Think of maybe your three-year-old drawing a stick man drawing, actually very ugly, right? But got papa, mama, you know, all this, oh, then you, oh, your heart melts even though actually it's not very nice looking, la, professional standard. Or they could be wrapping a present for you compared to what you buy at Christmas where people give wrap so nicely for you. Their wrapping is like, wow, the cost it everywhere. But yet, it delights our heart. Or you think of a teenager who is willing to hold your hand even though they're 15, 16 years old. It's not the biggest hand or the best hands in the world, but it delights our hearts because they come from the genuine love of their hearts as children. In the same way, God does not expect impossible standards from us. That we must always be you know, 100% in perfection in standard. No. 
whatever we offer out of genuine love for Him and in obedience to Him, even though we are imperfect, immature, it will still delight His heart. Now this, again, I mentioned, is in sharp contrast to when we were enemies of God. When we were enemies of God, whatever you do, it will never be pleasing to Him. But when we become children of God, as we do out of obedience for Him, for people, it pleases God. As parents, I think the other dimension we probably appreciate a lot more is when our children do what is on our hearts, what our hearts desire maybe, without us asking. Imagine they bring you a cup of water when you're doing your work. Wow, heart melt again, right? Because they care for you. And so this understanding that we who are sons and daughters who freely choose to do our Father's will is perhaps the most pleasing to God. When out of the voluntary obedience and love of our hearts, we want to please the Father, that is what is most pleasing to God. You see, there are four stages in our walk with God. First of all, one can obey involuntarily as a slave. The Singaporean language is no choice you have to do as a slave, you have to obey, no choice. Otherwise, you will be punished. That's out of fear. One can also obey voluntarily out of dutiful love, but still in the status of a slave. Exodus 21, I won't go into the passage, you can read it for yourself. But essentially, if a, the master provides for the slave a household, and out of gratitude, the slave says, no, I don't want to be set free, even though I can be set free in the year of Jubilee and stuff like that. No, I want to continue to be your slave because you've been a good master. They punch the hole in the year and so and so forth. So you can also obey voluntarily out of dutiful love as a slave. One can also obey involuntarily as a son. No longer a slave, but because oh yeah, I don't like to do it, I will do it reluctantly. But the highest level that we all long for, not from our own, only from our own children, but God in the same way with us is this, that we, vol- we obey voluntarily out of filial love as children of God. Right? All the parents, which one do you want your children to be? <laughs> to obey, to love out of their own filial love for us. Matthew 21 also records for us the parable of two sons. What do you think? Verse 28. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, which is essentially, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, obviously, right? Because he did the father's will. Now, what was wrong with the second son? Besides the fact that, of course, he didn't mean what he said, the problem, I think, is that he also never saw himself as a son, but as a slave. And it's found in that small little word called sir. I will, sir. Maybe he was being polite, which is possible. That word sir actually means kurios, which is lord, which means lord and master. It could also be that the son, the second son, never saw himself truly as a son of the father. He simply obeyed involuntarily. In this case, he didn't even obey. In contrast, the first son initially said no, or perhaps changed his mind because he understood the heart of the father. If I don't do it, the work will not be done. He may not have done it cheerfully, eh, to be fair. He may not have done it voluntarily, but at least he did it as a son. Son, will you go and work the field? Okay, I will do it because I'm your son. 
And so understanding our identity as children of God is critical, really, in our walk with the Lord. If you forget everything in this sermon, we just remember this one point. Understanding our identity as children of God really is critical in our walk with the Lord. My previous sermon, I focused on the authority that comes from being spending time with God. Today's sermon summary really is this. Understanding our identity as children of God is critical. And that's why Romans 8 declares, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. A slave lives in fear, right? You never know when you're going to be punished. But the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. How do we know we are children of God? It is the spirit of God given to us. And by this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba in Aramaic is our term of endearment, like Daddy, Papa. Right? That's the Aramaic way of saying Abba is like wow, so close, intimate term. It's not our Heavenly Father, very formal. But Abba is a dear, a term of uh, dear uh, endearment. And so the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we <coughs> are indeed children of God. <coughs> By the way, this is our key Methodist belief, to experience the assurance of salvation as John Wesley did, to know our sins are truly forgiven and we are children of God. If you have not had this assurance of salvation as Methodists, ask for it. Ask for the fresh touch of God to let you know this assurance that indeed you are children of God. By now, most of us are also very familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. Dr. Cha Fang Fong preached on this parable in the month of July as well. In this parable, just a quick recap, both sons had a, quick, had a broken relationship with their father. One was rebellious and left home. That's the younger son we know. The other son stayed home but actually was defiant. Both themselves, both sons, unfortunately, never saw themselves as sons, but as slaves. The elder son did not understand his father's deep desire for his younger brother to return. He should have gone out to look after, look for his younger brother, but he didn't. Neither did the younger son understand the father's equal love for both of them. That's why in the first place he rebelled and said, I have one nothing to do with you or my elder brother. Both of them did not understand that truly they were loved as children, as sons of their father. That's the problem. Coming back to our John chapter 8 passage, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's the reality we must accept. The moment you sin, you automatically become a slave to sin. And then it leads to death and fear. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family. The status is always different. But a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son sets you free because you believe in him, you enter through the door of Jesus Christ. You will be free indeed. So what happens when we believe in Jesus is that we are set free from being slaves to sin, slaves to fear. Instead, we become sons and daughters of the King of Kings, the God Most High. We are given a permanent place in God's family and now we receive authority, power, freedom, love that comes from God so that we can do what is pleasing to Him. So in this final analysis, there are really only two things that truly pleases God. Number one, to believe and to love Jesus, his son. If you reject the son, you are rejecting the father. And there is no other way to be saved, to please God. But suppose you already believe and you love his son. Then the next thing is to love others as Jesus did, even unto the point of death. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus says many times in various forms, if you believe in me, you will definitely believe in the father. If you see me, you see the father, for I only do whatever the father shows me. I and the father are one. So he says this all over the scripture of John especially. So to honor Jesus is to honor the Father. 
You want to please God? Honor the Son. Second, God's heart always beats for people. 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 So you want to please God? Love people. But only if you fulfill the first criteria. Become children of God. Otherwise, you can try to love people, but you will still be considered as filthy rags before the Lord. Was yesterday's funfair pleasing to God? I'm not God. I cannot say for sure, 100%. right? But I would like to think that yesterday's funfair was pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because I would like to think we did it as children of God, obedient to the Father, to genuinely love people, to, want to let them experience God's love through our hospitality, to welcome them into the Father's house with joy and celebration. And so that's what I think. It's pleasing to God if we did it as children of God, trying to love people. The final point for today, point number three, it can be a standalone point, but really it can also be a subset of the earlier two points combined. But the third point is this, what pleases God is us making room for and holding on to His Word. To make room for God's Word, to hold on for it, to His Word. Jesus says in verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then in verse 37, you may be Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking to kill me because you have no room for my word. John's Gospel begins, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me say that again. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus is the very incarnate Word of God. And so if you believe in Jesus, you will believe in the Word. You believe in the Word, you will believe in Jesus because the two are one. To hold on to Jesus' teaching is to keep believing Him and to keep obeying Him. And so this brings us back really to point number one. Whatever pleases God is to, believe, is to believe in His Son. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because they didn't believe He was God. They had no room for His Word. And so if you want to please God, we spend quality time with Him in His Word. His Word will point us back to Himself. So anyone who voluntarily obeys the Word of God, spends time, quality time in His Word, to hold on to the Word, to make room for God's Word, that is what is pleasing to Him. Let's close and recap with a simple quiz. Yesterday, the magic show, we had two quizzes. Huh? Right? So let's look at these quiz questions. First question, which of these doesn't automatically please God? Five options. To believe in Jesus, to spend time in God's Word, doing good works, obeying God's Word, or bringing people to Jesus. Countdown starting. Five, four, three, two, What's the answer? Doing good works, number three. Very good. Should we still do good works then? Three options. Not at all, because it's meaningless, it's pointless, whatever we do doesn't matter. Yes, we should do good works to secure our position, to earn our position as children of God. Or yes, but only as children of God who want to demonstrate the goodness and glory of God. Number three. Straightforward. Very good. So, to summarize, what pleases God really is when we live out our identity as children of God, fully anchored upon His Word, just as Jesus did. As mentioned at the start of this sermon, one of Satan's strategies is to get us to doubt our identities, just as he taunted Jesus in the wilderness, are you truly a child of God? And the only way we can stand firm against Satan is always returning to the Word of God. It is written. But we must spend time in the Word of God. 
to have our identity secure according to the Word of God. It is God's Word who declares us sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. It is also this secure identity that will continue to motivate us be on mission with the Master or our brother, Jesus Christ. It is this secure identity also that Romans 8 picks up as the only reason why anyone will be willing to suffer for Jesus, as Jesus did. I'll read for us a long passage and after that we'll close because I think it's meaningful that we return to the Word of God and what it declares to us. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Why is Jesus willing to suffer? Why is Paul saying that it is okay to suffer? In verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he understands, he begins with, my identity is a child of God. And so even if I suffer, it's okay because I am a child of God. Then verse 28, jump to there. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. The identity is so secure. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's why we are brothers and sisters with Jesus, right? Then verse 31, that's why we sang it earlier. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, if our Father in heaven is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The elder son, remember in the parable, I didn't even get a fattened calf. What did the father say? All that I have is already yours. Why didn't you take the fattened calf in the first place? It's because he did not understand his identity. Verse 33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Christians, we will suffer. Accept it, but it doesn't change our identity. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, really. Once we know our identity as children of God, everything will take care of itself. Come, let us pray. Father, indeed, I praise you. We praise you because, Lord, you sent your Son. And we want to affirm again our belief in Him. Lord Jesus, we affirm your Lordship over our lives, over our church. Holy Spirit, help us to walk in Jesus' footsteps. To always want to please you, God, our Father. But root us really in our identity securely as children of God. And help us to do all things voluntarily out of genuine love for you and for people. 
So help us to live out this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.